That's about as close to dancing as Presbyterians ever get. But thank you for your singing, for, for rejoicing with me in the Lord through song. Please turn with me to your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. A funny story, maybe not, but a story two, two months ago or so, Pastor Peter and I were planning out. And I said, you know, do you mind if I preach for Easter morning? I have a, have a great sermon on sacrifice and, and devotion to the Lord. And it, it'll work, I think, for Easter. Well, then I had my surgery and it just took me longer than I thought I would, as it usually does, to recover. And so it's the sermon before that, which is more of a Good Friday sermon. And yet, I believe this is the passage and the, the theme that the Lord wants us to hear today. And we will get to Easter at the end. Let us pay attention to God's word as we hear the first nine verses from Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Please pray with me. Fathers, we enter... A place in the world and a time that is very different from ours. Would you give us the humility to hear what you have for us to hear today? Would you give me boldness and passion and animation as I bring your word? And spirit, would you be working in all of us that we might see and love our Jesus more? For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, today is Easter. We celebrate the Lord's resurrection in all kinds of ways. We've had our stirring music. Sometimes there's beautiful flowers. Thank you for everyone who's redecorated. You see the wreaths and the doors. Sometimes we wear brightly colored clothing. Right? These all proclaim a truth that, that Jesus has conquered death. And so we have flowers and life and music to symbolize this new life. Well, what if instead of our Easter celebration today, We had an animal sacrifice. Imagine as if you came in that door, you saw one of the elders bringing up a lamb to the stage here. And instead of a pulpit, you had an altar. Say maybe Elder Parks is the session, the clerk of session brings the lamb up. And I think Peter, as a senior pastor, should be your prerogative. He would would receive the lamb and then he would place his hand on it. And then he would take a knife. And then he would cut the throat. And then he would take a bowl and collect the blood. And, and he would pour it at the side of the altar. And then he and I would cut up the pieces and we would place it on the altar. And then we would burn all of that in front of you 
in your presence. Welcome to the world of Leviticus. Now, assuming you didn't run for the doors, how would you react to such a sight? Well, first you might ask, why are we doing this? It's a good question, because following Jesus' death, the sacrifice is unnecessary. But that sacrifice would get your attention, wouldn't it? The sight, the sound, the smells. One thing is that you would not go away unchanged. One Bible scholar, Gordon Wenham, says this, using just a little imagination, every reader of the Old Testament soon realizes that these ancient sacrifices were very moving occasions. The ancient worshiper was actively involved. He had to choose an unblemished animal from his own flock, bring it to the sanctuary, kill it, and dismember it with his own hands. Then watch it go up in smoke before his very eyes. Now, animal sacrifice has no place in the Christian worship service, but they point you and teach you about your Savior Jesus, the Messiah. And you can't understand Easter fully unless you understand his death on the cross. And you can't understand the cross except through Leviticus and the Old Testament. And Leviticus gives the answer that God's people have been asking since they lost his presence in the Garden of Eden when they are expelled. How do I draw near to God? And the answer is through sacrifice. Now, if you remember way, way back, a couple months ago, bonus points if you do the theme of the, the book. It's very easy. Two words. In God, through sacrifice, you are delivered and then devoted. You, you are delivered from, from death and hell, and now you are devoted. You are set apart to live as a sacrifice to the Lord. And this sermon is an introduction to the sacrifice, and, and we're going to look at a way that the sacrifice shapes you. Now, I did have an outline. If you are an outline filler, you're going to be disappointed because I'm, I'm really not going to do much of that second lower part. So you'll just have to come back next Sunday evening if you're one of those people that has to know what's in the blanks. But we're going to spend most of the, the, the sermon in that first top part. And the idea is that through sacrifice, God desires your presence. God desires your presence. Right at the end of Leviticus, or Exodus, which is the book right before Leviticus, there's the problem. The, the tabernacle is built, the, the Lord dwells, but here's the problem. Look at 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covers the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Not even Moses, God's chosen mediator, the the priest and great prophet, could enter into God's presence with all his glory. We're back to Eden again. And so how can this holy, beautiful dwelling place, this tabernacle, become the tent of meeting where God and his people live with this restored fellowship? And we're going to find this out in verse 1. The Lord calls Moses. Now, this, this, this verb call is different than what you see in the rest of Leviticus. There's lots of speaking words. You'll see over and over, the Lord spoke to Moses saying. This actually starts new headings in the book. The Lord spoke to Moses saying. But here it says, the Lord called Moses. Calling in this, this, this story comes with a new act of God. And so in Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, same word, the Lord calls to him and reveals him this covenant name. I am who I am. At Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, the Lord calls Moses up to receive the Ten Commandments, the, the substance of God's covenant promises with his people. And then in Exodus 24, after that fellowship meal with Moses and the elders, God calls Moses up to Sinai and says, here's the plan of the tabernacle, my dwelling place where I will meet with God. And so now, once again, the Lord calls Moses and he's telling you, stop. 
Pay attention. This is important. I'm telling you how you draw near. How do you do that? Verse 2. There's a special emphasis in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, there's, there's a Hebrew word there that's karev, which means to draw near or to approach. And because you're, you're coming with a sacrifice, it's translated bring. And what do you bring? The Hebrew word is for offering. It's korban. It's the most general word. It can mean gift. It's the most generic word. You might have heard the word korban before. You might have seen it in your Bibles. Does anyone remember in the New Testament? Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for withholding resources from their parents because they say it's korban, a gift dedicated to God. And here Jesus is not criticizing the offering of gifts, but the hypocritical way the Pharisees are withholding things, they're using some of their customs to their own advantage. So, so you're offering a gift. You could actually translate this when anyone offers an offering. That's a little awkward. But what I want you to hear is this repetition of bringing, of offering, which means to come near. Four times this, this, this idea of coming near in this, ver- this verse. And so the Lord is saying, when you approach me, you approach with an offering, a gift. Now Leviticus describes five types of offerings. Each has different functions. They, there's some overlap. And, but they all follow the same general order except for the grain offering. So let's just look at the orders for the animal offerings, these sacrifices. You bring the offering to the tabernacle and you present the offering to the priest who looks over it to make sure that it's, it's blameless, it's acceptable, it's without defect. Then you press your hand down on the animal. And English translations usually say lay, but, but it really has more of an idea of leaning and putting your weight on the animal's head. And at the very least, this is saying, this represents me. I am now connected to this animal. And then you take it. And unless it's a special offering with the priest, the individual worshiper kills it and cuts it into pieces. And then the priest will take some of the blood. And and what he does with it depends on the type of sacrifice. But there's always some blood that goes on the altar. And then the priest takes some or all of the pieces, depending on the offering, and he burns the animal on the altar. Now, this word burn is not the normal word for incinerate, as if the house burnt down. Now, Leviticus does use that for when they say, take the skins outside the camp and you burn them. But here's a special word, and it always has to do with sacrifice. The the burning here literally means to turn to smoke. To turn to smoke. The, The sacrifice becomes like the incense that the priest offers that travels up to the Lord. Maybe that's a new idea for you. This especially happens for the burnt offering where all of it is consumed. It's all turned to smoke and, and it ascends to the Lord. And what happens here is this, a powerful picture. The animal becomes incense that rises to the Lord into his presence. Right? You, if you're sacrificing as the worshiper, can, cannot directly enter the Lord's presence. But the animal takes your place, does. And so through the life of the animal, you meet with God. If you look at verse 9, it says, The priest shall burn, it's that word turned to smoke, all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so this blameless animal takes your place, and in this way then, the door to God's house is once more thrown open. So, so what are the types? I'll just give you an introduction to the burnt offerings, the first six chapters of Leviticus. The first is the burnt offering. That's what we read today. Here, 
the entire animal is burnt up. It, it demonstrates that you are made right with God. It talks about atonement. But also there's this idea of total devotion, being totally committed to God as you're consumed with love for him. And then there's the grain offering. This word outside of the temple was used for a gift that a subject would give to a king or a lord. And so it's this idea of giving God, who is the king, your best, your first and your finest of your crops. And this would often accompany a burnt offering. And then there's a peace or, or a fellowship offering. This is a meal between God and a sincere worshiper. And, and once again, the best portions go to God, but then the priests and also the worshiper and a family get to eat some of it. And eating in God's presence is, is a very special occasion. It shows that there is peace, that there's reconciliation between God and man. And then there's the sin offering. The sin offering was the primary offering to cleanse from sins, where the Lord forgave the guilt of the sinner. It's where the blood of the animal would clean the sanctuary and the priest would actually smear some on the altar, showing that you were acceptable to come into God's presence. It was often the first of the sacrifices to, to, to make us able to come into his presence as, as ancient Old Testament worshipers. And then there was the guilt offering. That was another type of offering for sin to repay God when you dishonored the holy things of God something he called special, and this offering was, was to remove the guilt and to be part of the penalty one would pay. Now, I just want you to note a few things about these offerings. First of all, they're costly. Do you know how much a cow costs? My family and I just went in with my sister, and we, we shared a half cow together. It wasn't cheap. Well, the, the largest offering, if you were rich, was a whole cow. And, and, and this was part of your livelihood. Wealth was measured in livestock. And I, I think they were probably even more expensive back then. I, I would just guess that it would be maybe the, the, the price of a new compact car. It's like you, you drove it off the lot and you drove it out to our softball field. You, you put a can of gasoline and you light, lit a match and you walked away. Right? It's costly. But, but it's not just something that you bought. It's also personal. You were connected to these sacrifices. If it was an animal, you raised it. You birthed it. You cared for it. You knew it. You saw it every day and you bring it to the Lord. Or if it was, if it was grain, you worked from seed to harvest to produce that grain. And you, you bring the best, the gift fitting for the king to the Lord. And then they're without defect. First of all, because you don't want to give the Lord a lame animal that costs less. But also because this animal symbolized someone who was whole and full of life and holy and clean. And they would become your substitute as you identified with them. And so you see here the sacrifice is this gift of this animal without defect that allows you to draw near to God. And, and through the sacrifice then you experience life, fellowship, forgiveness in his presence because of this animal. Now, the world of Leviticus is often strange to us today. And if, if you've never read the Bible before, I think you'd be quite lost. And maybe even some of you, you, you do read your Bible daily and you get to here and you're thinking, what, what am I to do with this? And then I think there are a couple questions, especially one objection that, that our society raises today that, that might make it even harder for us to, to really appreciate or grasp what's going on here. And then maybe these, maybe these might even be, you've heard them or maybe even tugging in the back of your mind, maybe even unconsciously as you read these passages. And so I'm going to just look at two objections. And the first is, is sacrifice really necessary? Is it really necessary? Why does God require animal blood to meet with his people? That's gross. That's, that's barbaric. That's pagan. That's, that's petty. You know, it's, it's almost like God is a small God. and he just, It's just all about him. And he just can't let things go. 
God should be the bigger man and forgive, right? I mean, after all, my God's a God of love. That should settle it. That's, you hear that kind of thinking going on today. And there's also people who say, you know, not, not only that, but Jesus' death is a terrible thing. Not, not because you had an, a righteous man die for sinners and so it was unjust, but the terrible thing was that he died at all. There's no reason. It's pointless. They'd use emotionally charged language like the cross was cosmic child abuse or Jesus was God's whipping boy. Now, with this either comes a low view or a misunderstanding of Scripture. We'll pit parts of the Old Testament against each other and we'll say even sometimes Jesus got it wrong when, when he told the leper to go sacrifice after the cleansing. Cause, but, but Jesus gets it right in the end when he sides with the prophets instead of the priests of Leviticus where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right, you hear that? Mercy and, and not sacrifice. We don't need sacrifice, we just need mercy. So, so why can't God forgive? Well, that's taking Scripture out of context. The prophets are not saying to God's people, don't sacrifice. But he's saying, don't sacrifice, which is a sign of meeting with me in my presence, and ignore me the rest of your life. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose over the next month, I ignored my darling wife, Elizabeth, and the kids. You know, I, I never spent time with them. I never helped her at all. I was, I was on my phone. And, and then just one day, without telling her, I leave. No communication. No nothing. No explanation. I'm gone for six days. Don't tell her. Finally, I come back with a dozen red roses in my hand. I walk up to her, throw them down, and coldly walk away. What will Elizabeth say? I desire faithfulness, not flowers. Right? Something along those lines. I might be saying it mildly. But on the other hand, what this month I live for my family, I spend time with the kids. I, I'm talking with her, I help her out at the home, which she, she likes me doing dishes and a little bit of maybe making a little food. And, and then one day after dialysis and shopping, I stop by and all these. And on my way back, um, I come home and I have a hand behind my back and I give her a hug and kiss and say, darling, I love you. And there are 12 red roses. Now will she say, I desire faithfulness and not flowers? Well, no. Because flowers and faithfulness, just like sacrifice and mercy, go together. They don't compete. Now, this is a very limited analogy. It breaks down pretty fast. But in God's case, sacrifice is very necessary. And so we're going to have to answer, is this necessary? Yes. Because it's the only way. Before I I expound on that, I'll just say, if, if this is an area where you have questions or doubts, let's talk. Talk with if you're a child, talk with your parents or your elders or one of the pastors. We should never push our doubts down and then just listen to someone we don't know on Twitter or YouTube and see what they have to say. Well, why don't you bring it out in the open? Talk with your pastors who, who pray for you and, and love you and, and we can bring it before God's word and wrestle with it. And so is it really necessary to take an animal and just slay it and then splash the blood on the sides of the altar and smear on the horns? Yes. Turn with me to Leviticus Chapter 17. It's about dead center in the book. We'll be reading two verses, verses 10 and 11. And if you read on, you would continue to, to hear blood many times. But we'll just read Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
Now, there's a couple of things here. Blood sustains life. You think about it. If you are severely injured so that an artery is severed and you can't stop it, you will bleed out and you will die. Right? Blood keeps you alive. Blood so represents the life of a creature and the way that God has ordered it is for a sinful human to approach a holy God. Someone or an animal must give their life in their place. Life for life. Blood for blood. And this is not just an Old Old Testament idea. We could go many places in the New Testament, but I will just quote Hebrews 9.22 where it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't go on to say, but oh, that was back then. It's different now. No. Say this is valid today. And the truth is that you and I stand as sinners before a holy God and on your own, you are not okay with him. You stand under his judgment. Now, our world today thinks of sin like it's, it's, it's a minor inconvenience. You know, have you ever been driving down one of those long South Jersey roads? It's nice and straight and there's nobody behind you. There's nobody behind you. You're just cruising along and then someone's on a side road and they just decide not to wait two seconds for you to go by. But three seconds before they pull in front of you, you have to put the brakes on. And What's going on? I, mean, does it, does it, does it, I don't know. I find that a little irritating. But, you know, how much of your life have you lost? Five seconds? Ten seconds? A minute if they drive extra slow? And, you know, we say, can't, can't we just be the bigger person and let it go? Well, that's not how sin is like before a holy God. It would be much more like you served your nation for your whole life, this country. And, and because you, you were so important and so trusted, you were given all the codes to our defense networks, our, our, our cybersecurity, our satellites, our nuclear launch, our, our, our radar. And, and you sold them to one of our adversaries. And, and then you fled to that country. And emboldened that adversary, invaded a fellow country. And when our nation tried to respond, they shut down our defenses Millions of civilians were died or displaced. Thousands of our servicemen and women were defenseless and fell in combat. But our, our nation regroups. It, it, it gears up its industrial complex. It goes to war for real. And after countless deaths and what becomes World War III, you are dragged back to the country for trial. Now what people say, eh, just a minor inconvenience. Let the bigger nation just forgive. Any sane person would say, no. Justice must be done. There's a price to be paid. Now, this may sound extreme, but really this analogy only starts to get at what it means for you and me to sin against the Holy God. God is perfect and full of all glory. He, he created us to express it and appreciate his, his honor and to devote ourselves to him, and we decided to be our God. And that act of treason and sin is so infinitely wrong that God, in his purity and justice, must judge us or he would not be God. And the reason why the world rejects sacrifice, by the way, is because it rejects God's holiness. And our sin is serious. And because of that, your only hope is to be made right with a sacrifice. And one of the helpful things about these sacrifices, is they show us at least four ways that you have to be made right with God. And again, these overlap in some of the sacrifices. But let's just look briefly at these four ways. First of all, there's, there's a cost, there's a price to, to sin that has to be restored. When, when some wrong has been done, you, you have to pay to restore the damage. 
When I lived up in, in Allentown, still in Pennsylvania, when I was going to seminary, I, I had an old Honda Civic that I used to drive back and forth to seminary. It got me there just fine. And one day, someone just stole it from my backyard. Apparently, they're very easy to steal. I didn't know that. They went joyriding, and they crashed it in another city nearby. When the police found it, they put it in the impound yard. Well, guess what? Well, first of all, I was out of car. It was total. But second of all, they made me pay to get the Civic out of the impound yard. I didn't steal it. But you see, there was damage that had been done, and somebody had to pay it. And even if I had known the thief and say, I forgive you, I'm not going to press charges, my bank account still suffered. There's damage, a cost that has to be paid. But then there is a crime and a penalty that goes with that crime. For justice to be done, there must be a penalty meted out. Now, if you stole something in the Old Testament, you had to return it plus a penalty. Now, part of that was just so that you didn't kind of take something as a loan and give it back later. There was, there was a little bit of a stiff fine there, but it's also getting at a greater truth. When you sin, it's not just the damage that has to be restored. There is a just punishment that comes along with that. And then there's a relationship broken. I put in propitiation if you're following along the outline. I didn't want to have to make you write that in, propitiation. Kids, you can ask your parents over Easter dinner to spell it and define it, propitiation. Uh, but sin breaks trust and destroys relationships, especially God. And, and so, so parents, the cheat code is propitiation is when someone goes from being angry to being pleased with you. They're, they, are now, they are now accepting you and satisfied. God is no longer angry at you, but looks at you lovingly as his child. And finally, there's cleansing. There's purification that's needed. The Bible says sin is a deadly disease and God in his holiness cannot stand it. And you will be actually obliterated, destroyed by his purifying glory. Zachariah Zachariah 3 talks about how we are like Israel's high priest, dirty and covered with filth. And we cannot stand in the Lord unless we are given new, clean garments. Last week, as the sun got warmer, our kids rejoiced because they could finally go outside and play with the water. And so they were out there with the hose and water and the dirt. And when I was leaving to go to dialysis training, I saw Sammy covered from head to toe in mud and absolutely loving it. Do you think Elizabeth let him in the house like that? No. Kids, God cannot allow a sinner uncleaned into his fellowship any more than your mother will let you in muddy on her cleanest floor. Do you see why sacrifice is necessary? Without sacrifice, you and I stand before God having done incalculable damage, deserving the death penalty, wrecked our relationship, we're defiled and polluted. And yet these four ways of sacrifice, they repair the cost, they, they pay the penalty, they restore the relationship, they make you pure and acceptable before God. Now these are truths we'll explore deeper in coming sermons, but is sacrifice really necessary? Oh yes. Oh yes it is. There's another question. Is it still necessary? Well, okay, I understand that, that God used sacrifices back then, but can't we just get to Jesus? I mean, especially on Easter? Can, can we skip all the laws and the blood-soaked rituals and just spend our time with Jesus? Well, we, we do want to get there, and the, the Gospels are all about that, but you need to know this because Jesus is your sacrifice. Jesus is your sacrifice. And when you understand Leviticus... You understand what Jesus has done for you in his death and resurrection. And it becomes clear, even in the Old Testament, that the animal sacrifices would never be enough. 
uh, eventually a person would have to come to die. And that's what we hear in one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, where in verse 4, Isaiah says, Surely he, this is the servant who will be fulfilled by Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten in God, by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah says sacrifice is very necessary. And the New Testament many times uses language of Leviticus to talk about your salvation. I'll just read one from Hebrews 9 again, starting at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Leviticus shows you the graphic reality of Jesus on the cross and says, count the cost. Count the costs that your Messiah has paid for you. The perfect, beautiful, righteous Son of God came to this world to give His life for you. He came as if a lamb to an altar. As if for you to place your hand on His head and say, this is me. It was your sin and mine that put the knife to His neck. And it was for you He was sacrificed. So that if you put your faith in Him, your sin is forgiven. The cross has lost many of its hard edges today. No one would have been sentimental about a cross in Jesus' time, but it's, it's a background. It's on tattoos. It's on necklaces. But you cannot escape the raw intensity of an animal sacrifice. Take a look at these sacrifices that we've read about today and realize that in this way, God gave himself for you. There was no other way. God was not being petty on the cross, but showing Unlimited, unbelievable grace and mercy. As the old hymn says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. So God is love. But not in the way that he ignores our sin, sweeps it under the rug, lets it fester, but he deals with it. He gives his own life for you in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is a sacrifice that brings you near to God. And I ask you today, is he your savior? Have you humbled yourself so that you say, oh, my sin's not a small problem, but it's cosmic treason. I realize I have no help, no hope besides him. I, I might be a nice, respectable person on the outside, but I'm living life on my own terms. And I need the perfect son of God to die for my salvation. And maybe you're here because it's Easter Sunday or you're listening in or, or you're, you're a child growing up in the church and you, you haven't yet come to grips with who Jesus is. I will say this, do not leave today without claiming him as your Lord, without putting your faith in this sacrifice. This is the gift that God offers you. For Christians, followers of Jesus, you too should count the cost. Let your heart be overwhelmed by the love Jesus shows on the cross. Last year, as I was preparing for my CAR T-cell therapy, this was really the, the last known successful therapy that, that might be able to, to cure my cancer. I was doing some alternative treatments. 
And so I, I had asked people, both the church and friends, I said, would you consider donating? This is it's expensive, it's out of pocket. pocket. And uh, Elizabeth and I, we were both overwhelmed time and time again at the way God's people so generously cared for us. And then I went home one day and there was a letter. It was a certified mail. And it was friends from far away. We have a connection. And these are people who are well off. And I could just tell I knew what this was. And I took it inside. And I opened it up. And there with a card was a check for an amount far greater than I had asked for. I didn't know what to say, but just stop. I was silent. Overwhelmed by the gift of friends, of church. When I was helpless when I was fighting for my life, when there was nothing I had to offer, how much more has God done that for you today? Do you rejoice, humbled that Jesus willingly gave himself up for you in the agony of the cross so that God could be, he could be part of his family? This is the wonder of the cross. And this is what brings you then to the true joy this Easter. The reason that we go back to Leviticus is it's only as you wrestle with these gory sacrifices that, that you can understand the cross and then embrace the true hope of the resurrection. You have a Savior who died for you in your place, but He didn't stay dead. Easter is beautiful, not finally for the flowers and the bunnies and the candies, but for Jesus who conquered death for you. And if Jesus is your Lord, His victory is your victory. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. When you count the cost of the sacrifice, how can it not lead but to the joy of transformation? Now we have much more to say about that next week, Sunday evening, about how you live a life dedicated to God. But here's how we'll just end. When you understand that Jesus is your sacrifice, you become a sacrifice. Your life lived out in devotion to God Remember, you are delivered to be devoted. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. People of God, Jesus has died and now He has risen. Let us go out this week full of joy to live for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, our faith is not rest on how much of an emotional frenzy we can wear ourselves up into, how much we, we feel the sorrow of your death. No, you have paid it all. And yet we should be moved. Each differently, depending on how you've made us and how we're wired, but struck in awe and wonder. May we cling to the cross as we rejoice in your grave. Empty, and your resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen.